Warning, the episode you are about to listen to most likely contains graphic language, details of violence and murder, and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Murder With My Mother, where I talk murder with my mother, who is sitting beside me, my beautiful mother. Hello, daughter. Hello, everybody. We are already on episode 13 of Murder With My Mother today. And we picked an episode today that, again, we kind of have a closer connection to just based on where we live and where we were when this episode happened or this murder happened. Yeah, and situationally, definitely we were very similar to this uh, case that we're going to talk about today, as I think are a lot of people. And that's, I think, sometimes when you can picture yourself in a case, you really have a hard time with that because, again, I mean, it could have been, could it have been my children? Could it have been me? Could it have been my friends? Right? Definitely could have. And um, I think we lived in a similar setting to where this occurred also. Yeah. And like 20 minutes away. So that makes it a little more scary. And I know I've gotten quite a few of you guys actually requesting us to cover this case. Um, Again, probably because most people that are listening are people that also grew up in this area and remember this case like it was yesterday. Yeah, this one has been weighing on me, actually, when we decided that we were going to do it. uh, There's a different feeling here, as you kind of probably guessed we're going to talk about a child that was murdered. Abducted and murdered and abducted for what seemed like she just went, she vanished. She went into thin air and, and we all... Her posters were everywhere. Everyone was looking for her. And the way that this case ended was obviously very sad. So today we are going to cover the 2000 abduction and murder of 10-year-old Heather Thomas from Cloverdale. In our local area, uh, right across the street in Cloverdale downtown from the Cloverdale Fairgrounds, which I pass every single day on my way to work. And a lot of people know the area really well. Yeah, well, Cloverdale is known for having every year we have a big rodeo there and there's these big fairgrounds and every Sunday there is not now because COVID obviously COVID's kind of changed everything up but there was always a flea market on a Sunday every Sunday which was a big flea market like people would come from all over and there was lots of booths set up and it would bring in like thousands of people every Sunday so and it's right beside the racetrack it's beside a casino so yeah this was kind of a bigger it was a big case. It, it got global attention. And uh, actually, Heather did go missing on a Sunday. So the fact that that kind of opened the suspect pool up a lot because they didn't know if someone came in and was at the flea market because it, it brought people from, again, all over the lower mainland. People came from probably all over BC because if you like flea markets and this was a flea market to go to. Yeah. And I mean, you would never, ever be able to keep track of who was at that flea market. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's people from every walk of life. Like you go there and you see everyone from like the grandpas that are collecting junk to people that are looking for a certain niche product or CD or, I mean, yeah, it definitely was, uh, different crowd for sure yeah so we hope you guys can listen to this case and again we know it's hard to talk about children and especially when they are sexually assaulted and they're murdered and that's something that is very very hard you know we don't wish that on any parent and we hope that you guys hear about you know again the justice that happens and in this case it 
it happened not as quickly, obviously, as we would like, but it did happen. And so, well, there's a definitely, uh, we want to give an extra trigger warning to this one. Yeah. So here is the case of Heather Thomas. It was Sunday, October 1st, 2000, and Heather and her younger brother, Chris, had spent the weekend at their dad's house. Like so many of us coming from two home families or, you know, the where we do the back and forth or the every other weekend parenting arrangement, which is usually agreed on by some kind of court system. Yep. You and your brother were in that same situation. Yeah. So Heather's father, Pat, lived in a townhouse complex in Cloverdale, which is a suburb in Surrey, BC. Cloverdale, like we said, uh, is kind of like a farmy area. Like there's a lot of farmland. But it's also kind of got that small town feel in the middle of the city. So yeah. And and again, with the rodeo, that kind of happening every year, that kind of was, I don't know, Cloverdale was always a place where, yeah, like a tight knit, small little town in the middle of a big town, like you said. The kids knew that they were going back to their moms around 5.30 that evening, but they asked around 4.30 to go outside and continue to play with the other neighborhood kids while their father did some carpentry work. That was always the best part of living in a complex is there was always kids outside playing. And if, I mean, I don't know if their mom lived in a complex, but if they were only at their dad's every other weekend, then that would have been exciting because you have friends that you only see like every two weeks kind of thing. Well, and you guys lived basically outside in our complex. We lived also in a complex and you guys were never in the house. Right? Yeah, you would whistle for us. Like I would hear a whistle and know that my mom wanted us to come home. <laughs> yeah. So, but Heather's younger brother, Chris, came back in around five and Pat asked where Heather was. Chris said that he didn't know and he didn't see her, but like most siblings in the same predicament, he sent Chris out to look for his older sister. Now they had two years apart. So I know she was 10 and he was eight. So you know how that is when you have kids very close together, I know. I was always, if I was out, Alex, well, you wouldn't really send Alex to come look for me because he was seven years younger than me. But when you have kids that are You and Janelle are like Yeah, me and my cousin are four years apart. And it was the same thing. Like, I can't find Janelle. It's like, well, you better go out and find her. Or, you know, you can't, Janelle can find me. It's like, you better go out and find her. So Chris returned pretty soon. And he told his dad that he still couldn't find Heather. So Pat, like any parent at this time, became frustrated and was obviously, you know, I'm sure that if he was going through a divorce with the their mom and he didn't bring them home, it was probably, you know, it could have been a Yeah, an like issue. I think he wanted to make sure that they were home on time and, you know, when you have kids anyway, it's like a struggle to get anywhere on time. So. Yeah. Especially, like I said, when you've gone through a divorce or you're recently separated, I'm sure there's a lot of animosity in that situation. So you want to make sure that you, yeah, have your kids home when they're supposed to be. So someone else in the complex let Pat know that they did see Heather uh, on a bike. One of the other children from the complex had lent her the bike and they were, she was riding around. But they said that they had found the bike and the wheel was still moving. The tire was still spinning. Yeah. That's eerie. Yeah, so by this time, everyone in the complex was out helping Pat to look for Heather. The police were called and the first officers arrived, cased the area and interviewed people just around Pat's complex. Search and rescue also came and this was around 5.30 that she was reported missing. And by 10.30, there was a special unit called in. So the yeah, police special investigation. Yeah. So the police actually described Pat as almost too calm and that the officers kind of became suspicious that he could be involved and maybe did something with Heather. So this was just based on, again, his apparent lack of reaction. So again, you, you never know how you're going to react in that situation. 
Yeah, you just never know, especially something that vexing like you're. And and is she just had a friends? Have you know? Did she walk over to the next complex? Did she wander off? Well, and I remember when you were a kid living in a complex like that. There were two times I remember where you were supposed to come home at a certain time, or you were supposed to stay right in the vicinity where I could see you, and you fucked off somewhere to someone's house and you know, didn't listen to the whistles and then it goes through your head. Like, should I call the police right now? You know, it's actually pretty great that they called the police so quickly in this case. Yeah. Because again, you don't know if she's just out somewhere. And even when I lose my son at the grocery store, you get that little bit of panic. But again, to have her missing for a couple hours now, that's when I think the panic would set in, especially if it's out of character for her. Pat was cooperative and he let the officers search his home and vehicle and he was taken in for questioning. And the local RCMP, because of the suspiciousness of everything and they were suspicious of Pat, they did call in the serious crime section. And that night they searched the Cloverdale Fairgrounds, they searched all the surrounding area. And like we kind of explained, the area of Cloverdale is very farmy it's very lots of deep ditches lots of deep big fields yeah old barns um just yeah, a like old, all, lot of old, yeah, yeah there's all a lot of area of places that you know people could hide someone or abduct someone or... and even in that area there are a lot of little complexes there's a lot of townhomes and apartment buildings that kind of line that whole street and, and it's a very middle class area and i think Uh, A lot of the complexes are like affordable housing complexes. So a lot of areas with young parents and lots of kids and, you know, everyone kind of has a little bit more freedom there because it is a smaller place. Yeah. And even just the area itself, you know, it is Pacific Highway. So it's kind of it goes from the intersection of one way is Pacific Highway, which is 176, which leads down to the states. Yeah, right and so that, and then the other way is going right to the highway that you get on Highway One, and you can go as far as you know. You could go to North Vancouver, go to that way, or go across Canada. So it's like the fact that they went, she went missing around five thirty, or that's the time. I mean, this was ten thirty that these special investigation officers showed up. So that's a lot of time. And if if someone is abducted by someone, time is critical, especially a child. Well, and it was also the beginning of fall, too, so it was getting dark earlier, Mm -hmm. and, like, you just think of all of those things at once. Different people, it's a transient area, the highways go, you know, to such a vast place. Yeah, there's an endless... There's a lot of special circumstances here. So they pretty quickly ruled out that Pat, the father, had nothing to do with Heather's disappearance, kind of due to the timeline, because he was home and he was doing his carpentry and she was seen outside. So they pretty pretty quickly ruled out that he had anything to do with the disappearance. So now, because that's not, I mean, obviously it would be good for them to get a suspect right away, but because they didn't, and now this was being thought of as a stranger abduction or a crime of opportunity. And opportunity killings are majority of the time sexually motivated so that is now what they ruled this as and it was usually they say that um anybody that is abducted by a stranger is usually not alive for very long afterwards they're usually killed within two hours yeah yeah that is the statistic so 
they searched everywhere. They searched ditches, overgrown bush in the surrounding area, people's yards, garbage cans. They searched all the surrounding farmland of Cloverdale. And like geographically speaking, that's a lot. That's a lot yeah. of area to cover. They asked people to check their outbuildings and anything suspicious on their property. Well, and too, like you said, living in a complex like that, there are a lot of characters that live there and some of them kind of shady characters. So people weren't, some people were super cooperative and were like, yeah, for sure. Come on, come check our place. And, you know, and some people weren't. So they were not. Well, who knows what they had in there? Exactly. I mean, those were the days too where marijuana wasn't legal. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure. And I, like every other person in Surrey had to grow up at that time. Like, yes. <laughs> to be realistic. Yeah. And I mean, we are by that complex quite a bit. And there's definitely a lot of kind of transient uh, lower income people living in that area. Which is just like the buildings we lived in. So totally. that's why we can connect to this yeah. because it was the low income housing that we lived in. You know, there was a lot of weird characters talking about even doing this case. We That's why, again, this hits so hard home for us because there was there were some weird characters in the complex we lived in. This could have been, this was only 20 minutes. What if he cased, you know, the person that did this didn't case that area. They cased one just a little bit further away. Like, Well, I mean, even we had people that would even like remember our friend that would let the can man into her house to just come and get cans yeah like it was all we were all low income but we were all pretty open and just free-spirited and i think something like this that's a prime opportunity for a criminal yeah within three days of heather's disappearance there were over 10 search and rescue agencies out looking for heather Dive teams were used, bloodhounds were brought in to try to track her scent, but they literally had nothing. But they did collect things in hopes that they would be useful to the case. But again, they didn't have anything. It was literally like she vanished into thin air. So the news was seen in the area, obviously, you know, they went to interview the neighbors, to interview other kids, kind of, you know, they go and they, you know, ask anything. I was actually just talking about it today at breakfast with, um, my son and his girlfriend and his girlfriend's parents were walking by the area with the news cameras with their little toddler and news stopped and interviewed them and said, you know, how would you, how do you feel knowing Mm -hmm. that you have a child and this is going on? Like it was, it was very much in the forefront of everybody's minds. Yeah. And so one neighbor actually, as they were filming, his name was Shane Ertmode. And he had said that he just had someone break into his house. He was seen moving out actually. As they were recording, he was saying, I'm moving out of here. You know, I have nieces, I have nephews, I have cousins, and I don't feel that this is a safe neighborhood. This girl's missing. And so even the integrity of the safety of the neighbors, right? This neighbor said that Heather's disappearance was really the last straw. Yeah. And so the neighborhood was clearly afraid, as you should be when a 10-year-old vanishes, because that's never, they didn't take her to go take her to do fun stuff and give her this, you know, that is a scary, you never want your child left alone with somebody that is a stranger who abducted them. Like the faster we can get her home safe is better, right? So the whole neighborhood was shook up by this. We, like I said, we lived in a neighboring city or same city but neighboring town and we were still just as scared right it was just, terrible for sure i mean even thinking about it now leading leading up to doing this case like it's very 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 
disturbing. And her picture was everywhere. And as at this time, I was eight years old. So she was 10 years old. So I remember having the conversations at school, stranger danger, make sure, because they didn't know if this was a one-off. They didn't know if that, if someone took her and they were looking to take kids, it's at that time, there's, there's certain areas you could have targeted and it, it would not have been hard to take a child. A hundred percent. For weeks, she was the headline everywhere. Every lamppost, every telephone pole, there was Heather's picture. And I remember she had her hair up half and she had a cute little smile. And it, it's so easy to connect with that. Even looking at her picture when we're Googling for this case, when we're looking through things, it, it just brings you back there right away. So the team assigned to the case looking for Heather had grown from two investigating officers to 50 just in the two weeks. Plenty of tips were called in on the tip line and they were followed and ruled out and they still had nothing. Over 40 psychics called in and some of the psychics said that her body was in the woods or her body was in the water or she was buried in a shallow grave, which obviously, I mean, you know, these investigators are getting tips we, we, we cover this in a lot of cases where someone goes missing or someone, there's an unknown aspect of the case and there's a tip line. There's always going to be a lot of leads that they need to follow. And myself, I, I do believe in psychics. That's something, I mean, that's my own personal opinion. But I'm sure when you're investigating a case and you hear people saying crazy shit all the time. Well, especially, I mean, tips, the majority of tips are proven to be wrong. Mm-hmm. and you imagine when you're going through a tip line and there's like 900 tips or something and they're all wrong and you're weeding through them. It takes, it takes away from other parts of the investigation, but you have to go through them because one of those tips could be spot on. That could be the tip. That could be the tip that solves the case, but they don't know that until they go through Through that. Each one. Well, there was a guy in the complex who knew that everyone knew that he sold drugs. He was a, he sold crack cocaine. And so a, a, for prejudicial reasons, everyone, you know, they assume all criminality is related. Yeah. So they assumed this man must have had something to do with it because he is a known drug dealer. But when he was questioned, he said he offered to help in any way. And he said no normal criminals like sex offenders, which is what we talk about all the time with yeah. our jailhouse justice. Jailhouse justice. Yeah. So America's Most Wanted even called, and I remember I used to watch that show, like, remember I would watch it, I'd get so scared, but I would sit up and watch it by myself anyway, but I would still be super scared. On, like, I think it was Friday night. Saturday night, yeah. So they called, and they wanted to profile the disappearance on an episode, and that brought global attention to the case. Sadly, on October 22nd, just three weeks after Heather went missing, a man walking along the shore of the west side of Alouette Lake spotted a body floating face down. Oh, can't even imagine. The body was described as that of a young, small person, so a child, and was naked from the waist down. The body was also discovered in an area that wasn't overly accessible by a vehicle. Like, you had to walk about 15 minutes to get to any other road. And, yeah, like I said, the, the body was, it was pretty apparent that it was a little, little person. But because the body had been in the water for so long, they weren't able to identify the body right away because um, the decomposition was at such an advanced level because that's what water does. Water water is the worst enemy of any forensics case, right? Any case where they need to try to figure out. Because even then, even when you do an autopsy, the water pushes the decomposition so far ahead than what it would be. And it's just, it's not good for any investigator hoping to find evidence. 
Well, and water is, I mean, if you know anything about molecules, water molecules get in between every other molecule of matter. So yeah, they're infiltrating the skin and the organs and making the body more bloated. And, and anything that would be on there that would be helpful to them, you know, DNA or anything that would be washed away. So because of that, Heather's autopsy was ruled inconsistent. They couldn't even get a a, time, a cause of death. They didn't know. They didn't know a time of death. They couldn't find anything because of this water and her being in the water for so long. And they identified her, I think, basically based on her sex, the type of, like, the fact that it was a young person and the sweater that she was wearing was pretty distinct when she disappeared. Yeah, so Heather's family was notified and police confirmed the following day that the body was Heather's. Another thing that happened was as soon as the body was discovered, the police were really worried because news crews showed up like right away, of course, because this is all they've been covering. Every news that you would hear, every single one at the end of it was like, and still missing 10-year-old Heather Thomas. You know, it was it was very widely covered. So as soon as they heard that a body was found, they every single news crew raced there. This is actually one of the most sad and tragic parts about the whole thing. I mean, it's sad and tragic, but the way that everyone just kind of lost their cool and the news didn't treat the parents and the family with dignity. No, that's the last thing. Of course, your child's already missing. You're already going through these horrible scenarios in your head based on anything, any child that goes, like like I said, even when your kid goes missing for five seconds in the grocery store, you go into a panic mode. That's yeah. just what parenting is. You You panic all the time. So it's super fun. That also because, you know, the press was trying to see everyone has almost grown like this little girl is part of everyone's family. Yeah, or she was all of our child at that point. Yeah, because again, anyone, anywhere you'd look, there's Heather. Anywhere you you turn the TV on, there's Heather. Everywhere you go it was bring this little girl home. So now the fact that her body had been found in, in a shallow grave like that, that everyone connected with that. That was sad. But what happened was the police wanted to shut off the airspace around the lake and make it pretty much so nobody could go over there. But what happened was the province, newspaper. the newspaper that we have here, our, our local newspaper, actually beat that and had a helicopter fly so close that it was actually pushing the body away from where it was. Oh. And they snapped a picture. And the next day, so picture, right? Picture that. Your daughter is missing. The next day on the newspaper, the front page it was a headline saying, is that Heather's body in the lake? And, and I remember that. Like, that was, I remember that vividly. Yeah. And so, as they should have, they lost subscribers that yeah. subscribed for the newspaper. Because who wants to see that? That's like, again, like I said, everyone's become attached to this little girl. And the last thing you want to see is her boating in, in a lake, in a, one of our local lakes. You know, it was just horrible. The lake was searched by boat and dogs and a plane to try to find any evidence to tie to what is now this little girl's murder. So two days after Heather's body was found, police got a call about a suspicious, large, bluish-gray vehicle that was seen by park workers on the day of Heather's disappearance and the day after. Obviously involved now, since they can put one and one together, you have to think she went missing in Cloverdale. Yeah. No one's paying attention to what's going on. This is Maple Ridge. 
And at that time, there was just the Albion Ferry, right? Yeah, so it was to give you an idea, you would probably have to drive around 30 minutes and then take a 10-minute ferry ride and then drive probably another 30 minutes to get there. So it was quite far off the beaten track of where she disappeared from. It was two people, two camp workers that were heading into their shift and they happened to be carpooling. So they said this was at 6.50 in the morning on October 2nd. So if you recall, Heather went missing on October 1st. So at around 10 to 7 in the morning, the workers were in their car and they were driving and in front of them, there was this large grayish bluish vehicle as they described that almost looked like a boat. So they said that they were driving behind this vehicle. They they had caught up to this vehicle and the vehicle was driving really slowly. So obviously working in that park, you realize on a Monday morning, why would this random vehicle be in here driving slow? It's just a weird well, thing to and see. And also another really important piece of information is Golden Ears Park. I take the dog there all the time. It is a huge, huge park, but it's not like a park setting like a playground park it's like a forest that's off it's like in a the provincial park right? it's a provincial park yeah. and it's vast like super super vast like there's several lakes in there there's hundreds of trails mm-hmm. but even when i go there at like three o'clock in the afternoon it's not a very busy place so no. the fact that someone was there at that time in the morning i don't even think the gates no are even open now at that time in the morning no. like maybe back then they didn't have the gate system on but I know it's only open from dawn to dusk, and that was the fall. So mm-hmm. 6.50 in the morning, it would still be pretty dark outside. Yeah, and if you weird work... weird place to be. Well, and if you work at that park, you would be more aware that that is weird to be there at that time. Yeah. And so, also, I think because of the kind of vehicle it was, like, you know, if it was like a, an off-roading type of vehicle, yeah. it looked like it was more out there to be hiking hiking or or boating or whatever it was a truck with a boat on the back or whatever I don't think it would have been as suspicious so a little bit later because both of those they you know they probably their ship was probably at seven o'clock I'm assuming right so 10 minutes later they saw that same vehicle parked but at this time the it was parked with its hood up so it was like Like to the side of the road yeah so again the driver called like they called it in because they were like this is suspicious like they wanted the police to come check it out yeah so again that same day so think about it you see that suspicious car twice okay if it had left it probably wasn't as suspicious right but around 11 o'clock that same vehicle was seen at the boat ramp this time so the park worker who calls this suspicious because he was like, hey, wait a minute. We already have reports of two other people seeing this vehicle earlier this morning. And so then they also called it in as suspicious. But about 10 minutes later, they see the same car ripping it out of the parking lot, going like 80 kilometers an hour. Yeah, and I think the speed limit in there is like 40. 30, yeah, because it's a park. It's like a, a gravel road, right? So one thing that did come out of this, because the vehicle was suspicious, the park workers had some knowledge and some common sense and they took down the license plate, which was Dre, D-R-E, 666, which good thing this person had a license plate that was easy to remember because it saved the park workers from even having to really remember that much. That's a pretty, pretty like yeah. 1990s type well, the, license plate. The sure. best is it came back to a 1971 Chevy Impala which if you know anything about Dre, that is, I mean, that's right there. You could tell this person was probably a Dr. Dre fan. 
So anyway, the 1971 Chevy Impala was registered to a 23-year-old Shane Ertmode, and it was registered to an address in Vernon. But when they looked deeper, they saw that the same day that Heather went missing, Shane had actually renewed his driver's license and gave a new local address, which was Unit 8, 17700 60th Avenue in Cloverdale, which is the exact complex where Heather's father, Pat, had lived and where Shane Ertmode was seen and interviewed by police just days after Heather's appearance, disappearance. And moving out on the news. Because it was so dangerous for him to live in that complex. Yeah, so there's a little bit too many coincidences there. So Shane Ertmode had recently moved to the Lower Mainland. He moved to the area just 13 months before Heather's disappearance. Shane was from Vernon, which was northern BC. Where is Vernon? Vernon's in the interior. Okay, yeah. So that's kind of on the way. Did we pass Vernon when we were going to Prince George? No, that's oh. a different direction. Okay. Well, he had just moved there like 13 months before, and he had just been kicked out of his house in Vernon, and he got fired from his job at the local Dairy Queen. Huh. Shane was described as someone who liked to be around and talk to kids. He would apparently always offer his co-workers and people around him to babysit their kids, which for me would just give me the heebie jeebies It's weird. In 1992, while living in Vernon, Shane attempted to lift two of his classmates' skirts at, while they were on the bus. He was forced because of this to see a counselor, and by most people, he was described as a scary character and would do things that were inappropriate. Like one time he had a young girl in his care, which I guess someone took him up on the offer to babysit. What the fuck? Yeah. And he laid her down on the ground and he started doing push-ups on top of her, which is completely inappropriate, obviously. And super weird. So family members actually asked Shane when they heard that a little girl went missing in his area. They actually joked around with him and asked if he had anything to do with their disappearance. The little girl's disappearance with Heather's disappearance. But, you know, like when you think about it, it's... Well, it's like everything. Why yeah. would you think that that... Really, you think that this was his aunt that said that. So his aunt said that you... Like, oh, yeah, did you have anything to do with that little girl that's missing? Which, like, you imagine creepy weirdo. After, like, yeah. yeah. So on Saturday, November 4th, Shane Ertmode was brought in for questioning by the police. And so I think what happened was they were just sitting in there and trying to make him feel comfortable because that's what they like to do with people. They obviously are trying to coax them to, yeah, to feel get, comfortable to tell them what happened. Get more flies with honey. Exactly. So the police started saying things to him after obviously he had been in there talking and he was really quiet and they were saying things to him like, come on, Shane, we know that you didn't mean to do this. It's like what they say to everybody. Yeah. We know you we didn't know it was mean an accident. to. We know you're not like that. We know you, Shane. You're not evil, right? And so three hours into his interrogation, he confessed. According to Shane, he saw Heather outside on her bike with the other kids, and he was she was talking about birds. And so because of this, he didn't come out and say it, but the police basically said that they thought that he had kind of talked to her before because he knew that she really liked birds. So he used that, and he lured Heather into his home, which was Unit 8, which she was unit 21. And They're in the same little block. Yeah. And he told her that I have books and pictures with birds inside. So come and look at them. 
So obviously as a 10 year old, you are very trusting of adults because adults are adults. You've always had to listen to adults. Well, and it actually feels kind of good when an adult actually singles you out for attention when you're a kid. Like yeah. you feel special. And from what I've read, I actually think that Shane, because again, he liked to talk to kids. So there was a lot of kids in this complex. So I think that he actually had quite a like quite a relationship with some of the kids in the complex. He would talk to them. Plus he's like, he wasn't that old. He's only 23 years old. Yeah. And I think he was an immature 23. Yeah. I mean, he just worked at Dairy Queen. Well, and look at his car. Yeah. It's a Dr. Dre 666, which is, I mean, (laughs) clearly he is evil because obviously, right. I mean, we're about to get into it. So he said that he had coaxed Heather in with the pictures of the birds. And when he got her inside, he got her to lay down obviously probably after a little bit of time he got her to lay down on the ground he kind of coaxed her in to laying down and he got behind her and started spooning her and she must have felt so uncomfortable because it's oh my god and so what happened was he started to strip heather's pants and underwear off when he was laying behind her and clearly she was not okay with this so she started to struggle and try to stop him. And he said that he then put his hand over top of Heather's mouth to quiet her from screaming and stop her from from panicking. And in result, Heather died. So what he said next is that he put her and her clothing that he had removed, which this is kind of holdback evidence because they had found her with no underwear on, no, no pants, no underwear. And so the only other person that would know that she had no pants and underwear on are the is the person that took them off right yeah so they again because this was this is holdback evidence is why they don't say things out loud this is why they don't announce things so that they know that the killer is the only one that's going to know those details so he did corroborate corroborate that and say that he did take her pants and underwear off so he put them in a bag in a hockey bag that he had emptied carried her out to his car and placed her in the back seat He stopped for gas and then he thought of, which honestly, this, you see how he obviously started to panic right away and think like, oh my God, they're going to be onto me. I need an alibi. So what he did is he went to the local movie theater and he bought a movie ticket to say that he went to the movie just in case he needed a cover story. And I think actually, if you look back at him being interviewed on the news, he says, Oddly, he, and he just he offered it up, the information right? of, well, I was at the movies when it happened. Yeah, but that's because people project when they're the most guilty, yeah, right? exactly. Obviously, hindsight, everyone's like, oh, this fucking Shane, <laughs> right? Like, it was in clear sight that it was obviously exactly. weird. Exactly, it was in clear sight, for sure. So he said that he had heard a co-worker talk about Golden Ears Park and thought it was far enough away that if he, you know, if the body was found there, that he wouldn't be tied to it because he wasn't from that area. So he placed her body just out of sight on a roadway and he left. But he he said he got the feeling like he didn't do a good enough job of hiding her body. Yeah, he, he thought to himself that it was going to be found. So that was the day that he had killed her and he actually worked in Maple Ridge. Yeah. So the next morning, before he went to work, he went back to check to make sure that the body wasn't like he wanted to go back and basically rehide it, the body. Yeah. And that's when the workers saw the car at 650 in the morning. And that's why he was driving so slowly, because he actually didn't remember where he put the bag. And that park is humongous. Huge. And so if you're looking for something right off the side of the road and someone comes behind you, they are going to notice that you're going pretty slow. So that's why... 
you know, that's when they got his license plate and realized that he was suspicious. So he found her body and he marked where it was. And then he took off and left for work. He marked it with a burnout spot. From the yeah. Tire. Oh, cool. Dre 666. Yeah. He rushed to work because he had to work that morning. And while he was at work, he actually told his boss that he had a headache. And so he got out of work and he went to Canadian Tire and he bought a, like a, not a boat, but like a raft with paddles. An inflatable raft. So he drove all the way back and he returned to the park and he took Heather's body with him on the raft and paddled out of sight of any other people that were maybe trying to utilize the boat ramp or that were there to just use the park because it's 11 now. It's a better chance that people are there. Well, and like I said, time of year was on his side because, you know, that park is like way more utilized when the weather's nicer for sure. Yeah. So he dumped her body and then he threw the raft away in a nearby garbage bin and then he zoomed off at 80 miles per hour or 80 kilometers an hour and left the park, which is when again he was spotted. So thank God he was so blatantly, obviously suspicious. Yeah. He Dre666. He was like, I mean, that plate, that would have been a perfect place to get away with something like that. Yeah. If he hadn't been so obnoxiously yeah, Shane Ert mode, like, you know, then he probably would have gotten away with it. So thank God he did not. Yeah. So on November 22nd, Shane pled not guilty to the charge of first degree murder because he recanted his confession, which really, this was a circumstantial case. They did not have, because again, like we talked about, you know, the way that Heather's body was found they didn't leave them much it didn't leave them other than obviously everything that they can that shane is telling them now is starting to be like ding, 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 ding. you know it's all making sense so the only piece of evidence that they had uh that wasn't circumstantial was some bushes that were found in the zipper of the hockey bag that had been traced back to the complex and it was juniper yeah junipers mm-hmm. but other than that they had not one piece of physical evidence the only evidence they had was his confession and the fact that they did find the hockey bag mm-hmm. and that Shane Ertmo's aunt co- corroborated that he had a hockey bag. The same aunt that joked with him about being in, involved in it yeah. is the same one that said like, actually Shane has a hockey bag and I, this is what it looks like. And yeah. when they found the hockey bag, again, like you said, there was that botanical evidence that linked it but to his backyard. But, but really, was... Juniper, again, that could be a lot of places. And so luckily, they also had the park workers that had spotted him multiple times. And when you, you can't just, when you're confessing, make up, oh, I went at this time, and then I went again at this time. It's like, okay, if that's being corroborated. For no reason. Yeah, if that's being corroborated by the park workers and you know, you are slowly driving to look if you can locate the body you just dropped the night before and then go back again and all this stuff. So even though it was mostly circumstantial, it didn't make sense for it to be anybody else. No. What's the chance that this guy that lives in her complex who has history of being sexually inappropriate with children just and works in Maple Ridge and, and his car was spotted there and goes on the news and says he has a movie ticket from that exact day and moves out like you know out, yeah. so obviously yes circumstantial but you got to look circumstance sometimes that's is obvious that's the obvious yes so again he recanted his confession and said that he felt pressured and that the cops were just trying to get it out of him but you know what Yes. Okay. Maybe the cops are offering you a lot, but they're not saying these details that you are the one that you're the one that's giving these. Yeah. Especially the hold back evidence. Yeah. 
So on February 19, 2001, the preliminary inquiry began in Surrey. So I know that his lawyer thought, okay, in Surrey, we're not going to get a fair trial, which this piece of shit's not going to get a trial that anyone is in his favor anyway, anywhere you go. It doesn't matter if you went to China. I mean, I think what happened was he had a very renowned defense lawyer that had defended a lot of pieces of shit. And Sheldon Goldberg. Yeah. That guy's like notorious for just stalling, 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 stalling. So the motion to move the trial was just another stall tactic because it's not like the courthouses in New Westminster and Vancouver are far apart from each other. No. Like the I same said, newspapers, same jurisdictions. He like, could have gone to anywhere and it would have been like, nope. As soon as anyone heard that evidence, yeah. it would have been, it, you know, even if it was circumstantial. This guy's, the circumstance is this guy being a fucking piece of shit. That's the circumstance. Yeah. Right? So. Obvious. Judge Wally Opal was, was the judge that was assigned to sit on the Supreme Court case. So like you said, because that, that lawyer was really good at kind of stalling. So the trial didn't actually start until August of 2002. So that's a year, that's two years after she went missing almost. And a year and a half after they caught him. Because they caught him really, three weeks is not as long as it's taken them to catch some killers. But No, he confessed in three hours. Yeah. The threes. On August 29th, 2002, in what is apparently one of the quickest decisions that was ever made in a murder trial in our history of bc they found shane Ertmode guilty of first degree murder and he was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years in prison without the possibility of parole well and the best is that he was like made a like shane put up a big fight when he got when he got found guilty and said that that there was a huge miscarriage of justice and he couldn't believe that he was that being he was accused being of accused of this yeah And so Wally Opal was quoted as saying, I happen to agree with the jury. You have been found guilty of the most horrific crime in law. You murdered a 10-year-old simply to satisfy your sexual desires. So, and then he said pretty much like, you piece of shit. So in August of 2002, following the seven-month trial, uh, BC Supreme Court found Shane Robert Ertmode guilty of first-degree murder of 10-year-old Heather Thomas of Surrey. So he received a mandatory life sentence with no parole eligibility for 25 years. In 2015, the lovely Shane Ertmode applied for the, what we like to call on murder with my mother, the sick fuck clause. The faint hope clause, which is, I don't even know who the fuck made that. Like we say every time, we're baffled. But this allows killers that were anyone convicted of first degree murder yes which is the worst murder because it is completely premeditated you've been found to be guilty of a murder that you completely 100 percent decided to do and followed through with and you're evil and you should never be out of jail but let's bring you in front of your victim's families every couple years and allow you to yeah and allow you to plead your case as to why you should get out so luckily, he was he was not granted parole on the sick fuck clause, the faint hope clause. But Shane Ertmode will be eligible for parole in twenty twenty five, right? Twenty twenty five. Yeah, and he'll only be forty eight years old, so yeah. he won't even be very old. No, and he could for sure do this again, like opportunistic, yeah. right? Again, if you're looking for opportunity and people are not, uh, my head's always on a swivel, like they say on true crime all the time. 
my head is always looking for stuff. But that's because I, I know this kind of stuff happens. There's a lot of people who, especially kids, kids are so... They don't know. They're, they don't oh, know. They're them. innocent, naive little babies. I mean, they have other things to worry about, like riding their bike and playing video games and that kind of stuff. They're not thinking on the level of someone's going to abduct me and murder me. No, and even having that, my son's eight and having those talks with him, you know, if anyone ever tries to tell you, like, even if they're mommy's friend, even if anything, they try to tell you, you don't listen. And it's sad that you have to say that to kids, but that is the world we live in. And I actually live a lot closer to Cloverdale these days, like pretty close. Yeah, very close. And again, every time I drive by there, I think of just how sad that is and how, again, that's so opportunistic that that could have been anyone, that could have been any of us. So I hope that Shane Ertmode rots in jail for the rest of his life and that he is never allowed out. I know that people have rights, but this guy doesn't deserve rights and he doesn't deserve to be out and he could for sure... Who knows if he's just spent 25 years in there fantasizing about doing this again, because that's usually what happens after someone does it. After they murder once, they're pretty much just, I think, thinking about murdering again. Well, especially child predators. I mean, it's a sick thing that never goes away. You know, I don't think you can train that out of a pedophile ever in their lifetime. No, and I'm sure people will say, I'm, I've been saved. I've been, you know, a lot of people find religion or they find something in jail that makes them feel like they could be a different person. And I'm not saying that people can't be, but I think with something like child murder and child sexual, anything sexually motivated about children, yeah. in the first place, you're fucked. But, you know, so I don't really feel like there's ever hope for that because all I hope for is that these guys die in jail. And maybe that's, maybe that's mean. Or that they're in there and, again, have that jailhouse justice. I hope everyone knows who Shane Ertmode is and what he's guilty of and what he's done. And I hope his conscience just eats at him, you know? Yeah, me too. Well, thank you everybody for listening to our case today, even though, yes, we know it was a sad one. Uh, I believe that these cases also, you know, they should have some light shine on them because it's something that we've always I've always remembered this case. I always, this case was always kind of, you know, as soon as we started thinking about doing a podcast, this is one of the first episodes I wanted to cover. And this case has affected, like we said earlier, this case has been requested by many different people since we started our podcast. And I personally remember and think about Heather every single time I drive to work, which is five days a week, when I pass by that complex. Me too. And also, so Heather is buried at Valley View Funeral Home and Cemetery, which is right on 72nd Avenue in Surrey as well. And so just knowing that, it's like, even when I drive by there, there's a little bench that she's, you know, she's buried there. And I, and it's just so sad because she could have been out living her life. She would have been 30 this year, you know, and so it's really hard to think of that. And you know, hopefully we did justice and carried on her memory and we can remember her for who she was, the fun-loving 10-year-old. And 10-year-olds are just that. They're innocent. They're trusting. And it's really sad when a, an adult takes advantage of that and an evil adult at that. So, yeah, fuck you, Shane mode. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us today and we will give you some more listening content in two more weeks when it's my turn to find a case and an episode. Stay safe, everybody. Oh, yeah. Stay safe. Keep your masks on. Wash your hands. We're almost through this. I hope. Yeah, we've right? been saying that for 
for a while, but yeah, we can always remain hopeful. I think that's what's kind of carrying us through right now. And a lot of people are really struggling. I think right now it's just gone on for too long. So hopefully we give you something to listen to that takes your mind off things. and Yeah, that brings your mind to murder and stuff like that instead yeah, of the COVID. Well, and you know what? That's the thing. At least something like this is something you can listen to. And again, you know, you bring it brings life back into a case that I believe for me, it's really important to keep people's memories alive. And, I agree. And not just the memory of what happened to them and their demise and how they passed away, but the story behind who they were. and, and Yeah, keep their spirit alive. Yeah. So until next time, thank you guys. Guys, come back to listen to me talk murder with my mother. Have a good one, guys. Bye.